0: What this call indicates, as other testimony has likewise indicated, is that the instructions are coming from the president on down. And what did you understand that to mean, to put Zelensky in a public
1: box? I understood that to mean uh, that President Trump, through Ambassador Sondland, um, was asking for President Zelensky to very publicly commit to these investigations. Ambassador Bolton didn't want to be associated with this drug deal. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan, still recovering from a cold, but on the beam because we had an amazing day of testimony yesterday from the proper diplomats. Wasn't it wonderful to see William Taylor and George Kent, even their names sound like they must have been on the Mayflower, talking yesterday in coherent terms about the fact of this Ukrainian phone call. The first installment in the impeachment probe, I think was Bafo, was a hit. I, though have noted with some disappointment that some of the first reviews are in. Now, granted, they're from biased sources, like everybody's favorite drunk driver, the press secretary, Stephanie Grisham, who declared that the proceedings yesterday were boring, too boring for her. They don't like to party like she does. And I think Eric Trump said the same thing, and we know he always knows boring from exciting. But then, to me, the devastation came when the same thing was repeated by NBC, that the proceedings lacked pizzazz. I think the answer there is who needs the republic? Who needs democracy if you have Dancing with the Stars? That was my takeaway from that. Anyway, the whole thing led me to wonder about this constant craving for hyper arousal. This is what got us here in the first place. I know I've said this on the show before, but MIT's study of disinformation says we share things that disgust us and shock us more than anything else, even more than stuff that confirms our political bias. And, you know, the hate porn and porn porn of red faced spitting men, that's the hate porn, and the bare legged women on Fox News, that's the porn porn, is something that a huge number of us have grown I got to say, addicted to. And the shock and disgust of disinformation stories always about child rape. And try to hear that expression and not have it conjure an incredibly upsetting criminal and violent scenario toward a child. The expectation we have is now of the basest kind of showmanship. So I've come up with a set of rules, rules of thumb, for anyone who even remotely found yesterday's proceedings boring and thought that that was a good take. Here's my rule of thumb. If it feels like meth or hardcore porn in the system, maybe take it easy. It's time to learn some of life's subtler pleasures, like seeing an argument mounted in real time about the fate of Ukraine, about the fate of American democracy. You know, tolerate boredom, put off the pipe for an hour, then another hour. And I know you guys want specific recommendations for your friends who are caught in this cortisol loop, but close that Pornhub tab that is open beside your CNN tab, beside your, your Twitter tab. Porn really has no place next to politics. They're just, you're hitting the system with way too much hyperarousal, adrenaline, cortisol. I say quit your Adderall. Other people disagree, but I don't think speed in the system is what we need right now. Of course, quit hysteria TV like UFC fighting or The Bachelor and, of course, Fox News. Go out and see some nature and learn to meditate. If measured testimony about the grave misconduct of the president, the war in Ukraine and the potential demolition of democracy bores you or your friends and relatives, something is biologically wrong. Consider a hike or maybe watercolors. And please DM me on Twitter for more ideas. My guest today to talk all things public hearings is Ellie Honig. Ellie Honig is one of my favorite guests. I think he's at five times today. He is the guest we've had on most frequently. He's a CNN legal analyst, former federal and state prosecutor, and teaches at Rutgers. Now, Ellie For those of you who know him from CNN, was basically working as a waitress in a cocktail bar when we found him, when Trumpcast found him and first put him on. Of course, I'm kidding. He always has this wealth of knowledge, but he really has soared in his career. His brain is uniquely suited to our times, and there's no one better to explain what went down yesterday when we got these two witnesses in front of the House Intelligence Committee than Ellie Honig. Welcome to Trumpcast, Ellie.
0: Thank you for having me back, Virginia. By my count, this is my fifth time, so I want my robe.
1: Unbelievable. You are definitely to robe territory. I think you're the (laughs) Alec Baldwin or Steve Martin to my Lord Michaels. (laughs) So remember when we had Ben Wittes, he was the friend of James Comey. That's how he first kind of sprung on the national stage. And then the horrible Bill Barr, friend, frenemy, evil betrayer of Robert Mueller. Well, you (laughs) are... Though a brilliant man in your own right, a friend of Dan Goldman,
0: oh my God.
1: <laughs> Tell me about Dan Goldman and give your only slightly biased assessment of how he did in the first day of yeah. public hearings yesterday before the intelligence committee,
0: so Dan and I came up through the Southern District together. I was a couple years ahead of him in the office. He's I, I think he's a couple years older than me in real life. But I was a couple years ahead of him in the office, and we ended up in the organized crime unit together. And we uh, we ended up we did several cases together, but one big one that went to trial was a trial of three Genovese family mobsters, a boss and two hitmen who we tried and convicted for two murders and a murder conspiracy and two uh, and, and an attempted murder. So we obviously worked very closely together. We've remained friends. In fact, Daniel is partially to blame for me getting into media for the first place. He was one of the first people to kind of introduce me and, you know, bring me into this world.
1: He was on MSNBC right Right. before he went dark on all of us. I remember the day, and this tees up uh, our conversation, the day that he announced on Twitter that we wouldn't be seeing him um, on MSNBC anymore because he was going to work for Adam Schiff.
0: Yep. Yep. Well, and the funny thing is how it worked out for him like that. You know, I don't think I think the thought was he would go down there and work on Mueller, which yes. kind of gutted it out and then turned, somehow this popped up and now it's right back in the
1: spotlight. So. Amazing. Yeah. And do you think he helps draft some of Schiff's questions and how how oh, symbiotic do you think they are?
0: A hundred percent. I th- I think they work very closely together. I think, they, I, I think they see each other as sort of peers almost. I mean, obviously, Adam Schiff's the one who's elected, but no, Dan Dan has a heavy substantive hand in, in everything that that committee does.
1: It's amazing. that, And we're talking about the House Intelligence Committee. So tell me a little bit about the prosecution, because who doesn't like hearing these old stories about the oh Gisey family? And also, you know, what's your mob got to do with me? Like, what's your mob got <laughs> to do with yesterday's testimony? Everything. So what was Dan like and what was that prosecution like and how might it bear on yesterday's discussion of the fraud guarantee goons?
0: Well, this case was, fortunately for us, very bloody and not really complex in terms of fraud or corruption. We basically prosecuted a boss and two guys who had done a murder of one of their own. They killed one of their own captains. They had him gunned down in the middle of the street in Springfield, Massachusetts. We started the case with that. We charged a bunch of guys. One of them flipped and then led us to a different murder victim who they had killed seven years before and buried in the woods. No one knew where the guy was. This cooperator said, I'll show you where he is. And he took us into the woods, not physically, but he took the FBI agents into the woods physically, and they got out a backhoe and they dug up this body that had been missing for seven years. So we tried both of those murders and convicted them on both of those. We didn't really have any, like, heavy issues of state or corruption in that case. And it's pretty easy to explain to a jury why killing a guy and bashing his head in and burying him in the woods is a crime. So. Dan had definitely more of a challenge on his hands yesterday. But look, to your first question, I th- I think Dan did an extraordinary job. And you can discount that statement by whatever anyone wants, knowing that I'm friends with him. But I thought, look, 45 minutes is way more time than we're used to seeing interrogators have in the House. But it's it's nothing but as as criminal uh, prosecutions go. Now, that said, he had the benefit of having already gotten extensive testimony from these guys. So he needed to make it a greatest hits reel. And yes. I think he did. He, um, and I think he was very clear. I think... The other, uh, the other lawyer for the Republicans, Stephen Castor, had his moments, but he was not clear in his questioning. Sometimes I was like, what is he even asking these guys? I thought Dan was really clear. And one thing, another thing that's important to know is the rules of hearsay do not apply. Um, and I think some of the questions that Dan asked would have, you, you would not have been able to ask in court. But I think it's not only appropriate, but smart that he did ask hearsay questions. What did you hear from this person? What did you learn from that person? Because that's an important part of this case and you need to make this sing for the American public. So play within the rules. And if the rules allow hearsay, then then use hearsay.
1: Okay, so let's spell out exactly what is meant by hearsay in this context. And I mean, because just like last time where, you know, the Republicans and Trump were shouting no collusion, this time we have the terms of art, if there's still that quid pro quo and hearsay that are consuming a lot of characters on Twitter, put it that way. So talk about the effort to discredit yesterday's witnesses, William Taylor and George Kent, by saying everything they know is simply, quote, hearsay. This was the Jim Jordan argument yesterday.
0: Right. So hearsay is kind of a technical argument, meaning, but basically, you know something because someone else told you about it, right? So I saw, to use the example, I was in the woods with those guys that night when they bashed him over the head with a shovel. I watched it happen. I saw them dig the hole and push him in. That's not hearsay. But saying, oh, I talked to one of the guys afterwards, and he told me that they bashed his head with a shovel and buried him in the woods, that would be hearsay. Now, that said, it is not hearsay if you're telling, if you're testifying about criminal conversations that you had so if you're saying Ah. i was part of conversations and they were talking about hey let's do this hey let's make sure we message this to the ukrainian president i would actually argue that's technically not even hearsay now let's Ah. put aside the sort of nitty gritty rules of evidence and talk to sort of practical the only real attack the main real attack on taylor and kent yesterday was they have secondhand information and my response to that is a couple things first of all largely true Right, they didn't actually go into the Oval Office and sit with Donald J. Trump and, and communicate with him. Um, and I would also say probably that the Republicans' best and most effective line of defense yesterday. That said, ultimately I don't know where it gets them for a couple reasons. First of all, we have the July 25th summary transcript. So who the heck cares ultimately when you have the ultimate first-hand witness, which is Donald Trump himself in his own words? Yeah. Second of all, like wh- what's the argument here that that Kent and Taylor are somehow Fabricating this—that they—that they they were merely reporting on idle gossip. No, these guys were key diplomats, key State Department personnel, interacting directly with the people who were trying to pull off this crazy scheme. So what they're seeing and hearing these people do is directly relevant. I think it overly discounts a little bit. You can't just shrug your shoulders and say it's secondhand information. It's it's useless. It's not as powerful as if they said, "I met with Donald Trump and he said get this done," but. It's also still quite important.
1: What was the problem with the Mueller investigation or the defense against, sorry, not the investigation itself, the defense against the Mueller investigation and the beginning of the so-called origins investigation that Barr's now off gallivanting around doing, and then also here where we talk about the origin of this investigation, the whistleblower, is that it shouldn't matter where the tip comes from. So let's say a whistleblower comes and says, I was in a cloud of smoke here can you firefighters go and see if there's a fire? It really doesn't matter if the guy who sniffed the smoke is, you know, what his party affiliation is or whether he's, you know, credible. And, you know, getting into Byzantine theories about, well, this person's loyalty is to Ukraine or this person's a never-Trumper is, on the face of it, silly. At the same time, the sort of chain of how this thing all gets communicated is somewhat interesting because, as you say... The Speech Act itself is a crime. Right. Right? So the quid pro quo happens in language. The extortion happens in language. It happens on this phone call. So this is the thing Jim Jordan loves to parody. When Taylor's staffer, right, overhears a conversation, see if I have this right, between Sondland and... And Trump. Trump, right? And then the staffer debriefs with Sondland, and he says Trump is much more interested in the, the the Ukraine, the investigation of Biden, than he is in Ukraine's interests, something like that. Right. And then the staffer relays that to Taylor. That actually could be more not a not an instance of I think there's something evil going on here, but just this is the game plan. Right, as I understand it from Sondland, because Taylor has to be has to he has to have Taylor's buy-in. Sondland doesn't. Trump does. So instead of saying, "Oh, you know, I heard it from a friend who heard it from a friend," you've been messing around. That's not that's not the the chain of communication here. It's a it's a sort of are we all on the same page? This is our you know, or at least this is what Sondland and Trump think is our plan.
0: Right. Look, this is a crime that, if you believe it's a crime as I do, that gets committed with words. That's right. This is not. A murder, And there's no shovels in, and there's no guns involved. This is using words, using the power of the U.S. government to enforce your will on somebody. And right. I mean, that that phone call is actually a perfect example. So the primary witness would be Sondland, who, by the way, is testifying next week. And you can bet he's going to be grilled all about that conversation, whether it ever happened. He's he is a little bit of a wanting it both ways type guy. So it'll be really interesting to see how he tries to characterize it.
1: Wanting to stay out of jail and wanting to be loyal to Trump are definitely conflicting. Exactly. Definitely. Those are the things that divide the soul, as we know from Michael Cohen. Those
0: are the two things he wants. And then you have the staffer who he could testify to what he overheard between the two of them. That is not hearsay at all. But then when they hang up and Sondland says to him, well, Trump told me this and that, that would technically be hearsay but it's obviously very relevant to what's going on here yeah these aren't just two people who like saw something on tmz and then reported about it mm, the, yeah. the, these are witnesses who were centrally involved and in fact they were trying to resist what was going on i'm talking about uh, taylor and and ken and by the way i totally agree with what you what you started with with the whistleblower all these attacks on the whistleblower are the most irrelevant disingenuous distraction tactic i mean it could not matter less who the whistleblower is or, or what he said, because we have all the evidence. The whistleblower is not at all the evidence. The whistleblower has led us to the transcript. Yes. The little whistleblower has led us to all these other people. And by the way, one thing that I feel like needs to be corrected, Donald Trump keeps talking about, I have the right to face my accuser. You actually don't. That's not the right. The right you have is to confront the witnesses against you. That's what it says in the Constitution. So there are times when your accuser may not be around, may not be, may not hmm. have been involved. Maybe your accuser, Maybe I'll put it this way. Virginia. Let's say that I started hearing from a bunch of my friends. I wasn't there, but three of my good friends said that a fourth one of our friends committed a bank robbery. I might call the cops and go, Hey guys, I'm hearing from people who I know and trust and who would know that friend number four committed a bank robbery. Well, they would go make the case. The witnesses would be friend one, two, and three. I would be the accuser. I'm the one who called the cops, but I'm not a witness. I don't know anything relevant. So, and what, what you have a right to do is confront the witnesses against you. And by the way, footnote to Donald Trump. Confront does not mean, as he seems to think it means, get them in a room and and point your finger in their face and yell at them. It means when they testify in court, you have the right to be there to see them and to have your lawyer cross-examine them within whatever the rules of court are. So you don't really have the right to confront your accuser. You have the right to cross-examine and confront in court the
1: witnesses. It really seems like because Trump conflates all the time, and in a way, this whole issue with Ukraine is conflates kind of private operations, sort of black ops to smear people, to do back channels, to do go rogue like Giuliani and the fraud guarantee guys did, um, and yeah. try to architect policy, and smear people. These are things that, as we've increasingly come to understand in the last three years, kind of mob tactics, really get the bo- participation of everyone from Harvey Weinstein and Jeffrey Epstein and so on— the right to face my accuser to Trump seems to mean the right to smear my accuser, as he did with Stormy Daniels and with everyone else who, you know, so much as tells me has a hair out of place. His counter argument is, "Well, you're fat," and he wants to be <laughs> able to say to say back, you know, the whistleblower's got a pencil neck, or he's, you know, give him a nickname yeah. or whatever. And that is <laughs> quite different from the legal legal operation of the so-called right to face my accuser, which, as you say, is not even binding here. But the collision. Of these mob tactics, these thug tactics, with the propriety of Kent, and I mean even their names, Kent and Taylor, you know, and Kent, <laughs> Kent telling us that, that you know these are like the Minute Men out in Ukraine, you know, they're right. These, the, and, and also get what did he talk about Robespierre? you know, coming yep. to... foreign
0: mercenaries. Yeah,
1: exactly. And, you know, George Kent says there have been how many generations of George Kents in the Foreign Service. You really right. think there was a George Kent in, you know, in blues with the Minutemen. I mean, there would definitely <laughs> been some George Kents in this country for a long time. Anyway, right. this this propriety, this commitment to American values in these guys and the constant collision of them with, like, CrowdStrike and, you know, Looney Tunes, uh, Pinwheel Eyes stuff from Devin Noonan. As it's just this idiom clash that you can't believe. It must have been like you and Goldman with the with the Genovese's, you know, sort of good kids, student council types like you two, you know, trying to talk to people whose logic is just completely. Completely different, and I, I felt like yes. that collision was extremely interesting yesterday. Just the the, just, the contrast was remarkable. Yeah, I, I think at some point, you know, Kent said in his opening statement, "God, there was something, you know, it was rather unsavory, you know, or something like <laughs> that." To see this, I mean, yeah. it was beautiful, but but also they were such a nice litmus or like a uh, tuning fork or something to be like, "This is horrible." This is just yeah. a crazy crisis. And it's like nothing we've ever seen before, even though we have 50 years between us and the Foreign Service. And we actually are concerned about the Ukrainians and about Putin's imperialist ambitions. And here we are, someone for petty reasons, for vanity purposes, crashing our foreign policy. You know, if they yeah. were if they were a different kind of guy, they would say, you know, WTAF. Like, you know, what is going on here? Yeah. Is that something you experienced, too? I mean, I was quite moved and always am by Taylor when he talks about Ukraine itself.
0: So the contrast was was really jarring yesterday between these two guys who are just model citizens, military and diplomatic, career public servants and heroes. Yeah. One thing I think that the Democrats were really successful in doing is driving home the question of, why does this all matter anyway? Like, Why do we care so much that Trump was trying to shake them down for info on the Biden? It's like, yeah, it's unseemly. But when both witnesses talked about their own experience in Ukraine and looking across that bridge and the active combat zones, and yeah. Taylor said he was there last week and a, and a Ukrainian soldier was killed. I mean, that really drove it home. Now, one of the things that is really unusual about this and in, in in a way that is advantageous for Dan is you don't get to put on, in the real world of criminal trials, your witness list is nothing like this. Like they have just a list of career public servants. These mm. two, Yovanovitch, Fiona Hill, all these people are coming up. I mean, with the perhaps exception of Sonlin, but this is like Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts. When, yeah. when you're doing trials in real court, I mean, the trial I told you about, our two-star witnesses were both confessed murderers. Mm-hmm. And so you get used to that and you 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 learn how to explain to a jury, yeah, these guys are really bad. But the question isn't, do you like them? The question is, do you believe them? And here's how you know they're telling the truth. Now they, the House Democrats, Schiff and, and Goldman, have the luxury of, of going with a really credible and appealing group of witnesses. And I thought that really, with, with very few exceptions yesterday, I think the Republicans did not attack these guys personally. I think that was a smart move. Now, Nunez was off the rails. Off said. The I, rails. Don't know, I don't even know what planet he was coming from because I thought there was even Jim Jordan in his Jim Jordan-ish sort of aggressive uh, glib, let's say mildly insulting manner, stuck with the main points of like, you're all secondhand witnesses, you don't really know what you're talking about. But Nunez was off on uh, uh, on uh, uh, the Bidens and Burisma and, and CrowdStrike and U- Ukraine really hacked the 2016 election, not Russia. I mean, it was almost... And, it was Pat- almost, and also he, yeah.
1: he did attack Taylor and Kent as patsies for the, Republic- uh, patsies for the Democrats, who were chumps, who yeah. were participating in a TV show. You know, I just thought this yeah. guy has a bronze star. This is the first thing he's hearing from Republicans. Yeah. That is not going to yeah. endear him to this as a fact witness. You know, right, right, a, an attack. But these on guys character. are so
0: down the middle, and yeah, these think, guys are so down the middle they're, they're going to just call it as they say. It. And there were examples of that yesterday when, yes, the Obama were thing. Give,
1: were you going to say the Obama thing?
0: Yeah, exactly. Like they were called upon, and this is to me is what helped make them so credible. They were called upon to give answers that they probably knew the Democrats wouldn't love, but they were accurate. Like Obama yeah. never gave them strike missiles or, you know, whatever they're called. And they said that's correct. Now, look leave it to it's adam Schiff's job and dan's job to come up with the arguments as to why that doesn't matter or why that th- that's not so but the, both taylor and kent saw their job as like i'm just very just the facts straight up not shading not obfuscating um just i don't care it's not really my business who this particular response hurts or helps who likes it or doesn't like it this is just what i know
1: yeah yeah I mean, I you know, I was starting to think in the in our in our kind of binary system where it's that you know, everybody alludes to kind of both sides or us and them or whatever, that there's a real distinction between kind of, private sector types who sort of live and die on these personality cases that the Devin Nunezes and the and the Jim Jordans, who could be candidates for Dancing with the Stars and who, you know, can sort who have sex scandals in their backgrounds and who do these outrageous carny things. And then mm-hmm. there're people who they're kind of like low personality. They have long CVs. Kent and and Taylor, who aren't even going to pass over to the kind of Bolton-Mattis thing of writing books, or you don't really see Taylor or any of the prior George Kents even taking a gig on, you know, one of the cable news channels. They just are yep. not living... Um, for, you know, for a, applause and and in this this big cartoony way that that where the the the, the highest praise for it is it's not boring. You know, we heard yep. reviews, <laughs> theater reviews from a, a, a reporter who will go unnamed. Um, of yesterday's performances, and we also heard about this from Stephanie Grisham, another person with some mugshots in her past, and Eric Trump, that yesterday's proceedings were boring <laughs> and that there was something important about saying that it was boring. There wasn't a, there wasn't enough, uh, I don't know what, blue dresses or, or Trump-like Lindsey Graham-like spitting and explosions or sex and whatever. Right. What's the use of fireworks in this? In fact, Sorry, I'm going off on this, but it seems like the fear of things being boring is what got us into this mess in the first place, that nobody (laughs) has tolerance for reading 448 pages of the Mueller report or sitting with a candidate and sort of figuring out their policy positions or their moral commitments and instead um, went for showmanship this time. And here yeah. we are still wanting more showmanship and faulting Taylor and Kent for, you know, the fact that they didn't show any leg and get on a chorus line.
0: Right. So first of all, I think criticisms of this as being boring or not boring, it's its its become a very predictable thing that that politicians say when they just don't want any attention. They just go, oh, it was boring. It was a dud. Um, and, it, and it is a concern that that's how we're sort of evaluating these proceedings now. How how exciting were they versus how boring? I do think there is some utility, though, in looking at how much attention mm-hmm. is this getting and is it changing minds? Because ultimately, unlike a court proceeding, it is a legal proceeding, but mm-hmm. it's ultimately a political proceeding. Politicians are nothing if not responsive to public will and public polling. And if the whole of the, the, the nation was watching and riveted and minds were changed, that's going to make a difference. And if nobody cares, then maybe they should But as a pragmatic matter, it's not going to change polling. It's not going to change where politicians come out. But I agree. I think it is really short-sighted to just... First of all, I found it interesting. Maybe I'm a nerd. I don't know. Oh,
1: no, no, no. It was extremely interesting. And I mean, there's no way to hear, I mean, to hear this the plight of the Ukrainians, to, hear, to be reminded of Crimea, to be reminded that Russia's in an expansionist mode. I mean, anyone who cares yep. about war geopolitics, I mean, this is the stuff that defines not boring. We I had Bolton it. describing the whole thing as a drug deal. If you need more, you know, if everybody needs more Jerry Springer, right. which I actually thought was really interesting. So let's talk about the leveraging of Bolton's AIDS testimony yep. that Bolton had said, I don't want to get caught up in the drug deal that Giuliani and Trump are doing.
0: Bolton, to me, is an interesting character in all this because it seems like from the testimony of his aides and others, Bolton is, is somebody who cried foul when this was happening. He recognized what he, he was at the meeting where Sondland essentially laid it out as a quid pro quo and Bolton got mad and ended the meeting and then said, we don't do politics here. And then ultimately he tells uh, Vindman and others, uh, I think Fiona Hill, oh, report this up the chain, to the National Security Council attorney. So in that sense, he's sort of riding the white horse and, and, and the good guy. On the other hand, he never came out with any of this and now he's resisting testifying. I mean, look, he could yeah. testify. There's no question about it. All these other people have testified. The White House's bluff has kind of been called of, well, we don't want you to. Well, the ones who have, nothing's happened to them and they ha- the White House has not gone to court to try to stop them. So he absolutely could testify if he wanted to. Um, but he's not willing to, and he's going to, he's going to force the Democrats to go to court, which he knows darn well, they just don't have time to do. Mm -hmm. If this was a criminal case and you had years and years to put it together, sure. You go to court and you force these people to testify, but there's no possible way the Democrats can get these cases into the court through the appeals before, before Easter. And they need to be done way before that. And he knows it. So he and Mick Mulvaney and others are exploiting that and they're hiding And to Bolton, I think it's I think it's inexcusable that either of them is hiding any truths, any facts from the American public, given that they're both very high ranking members of the executive branch. And B, I really have a problem with John Bolton writing a book. It's like this guy's willing to tell what he knows in a book, but he's not willing To comply with the congressional subpoena, what does that tell you about this guy's patriotism?
1: And apparently, he's he's also slagging off uh, Jared and Ivanka and uh, the Trumps generally to in private um, speeches, paid speeches to, I don't know, I'm just going to say Goldman Sachs because it's usually the one that people plug in, but but I think it might be Merrill Lynch or another bank. Yeah, this the thing of wanting to cross over and become kind of some kind of media star, whether you get on you know, Dancing with the Stars or, or you know, or CNN. No no offense. You're a journalist, so CNN's where you belong. But it is surprising how many people want that spotlight.
0: Why do you think I'm not qualified to do Dancing with the Stars? Maybe I'm
1: good. <laughs> you're so- I'm sorry. You're right. And I don't want to trigger anything. I actually find, as I told you before the show, you quite balletic when you work that magic Thank wall you. on CNN. Um, so Thank maybe you. you could pull off the tango with Sean Spice or whatever. Horrible. No, I do. Be- <laughs> but yeah, I mean... It interested me that one of the things that appalled Kent the most was that you have, you know, he called them American citizens in concert with these unsavory Ukrainian figures, and he then named them Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman, who are really you know, these flim-flammer goons who've been indicted. I mean, there's no reason to afford them much more space than that. One of them ran a nightclub called Mafia Rave and the other together they had a company called Fraud Guarantee and, you know, who needs any more on them? And they were synced up with Giuliani and doing this thing and then the unkindest cut to Kent and it it is, I mean, for listeners it is so worth reading his testimony and hearing it in the voice or, or watching him give it in his patrician way, describing how Parnas and Fruman were going after Marie Yavanovitch to smear her reputation. So Trump wants, of course, for Ukraine to dog and harass the Bidens and smear the Bidens and throw dirt at the Bidens, right? But we also yeah. have these mini smears going on all the time with these career public servants whose reputations, um, Parnas and Fruman, are trying to shred and just the, the the richness of the ironies. I mean, these guys are already indicted. They're about yeah. as thuggy and covered in dirt as a person can be in this world, short of, you know, yeah. having strangled someone. And then they take shots at Yavanovich. It's just incredible.
0: Yeah, one of the fundamental tensions that we're seeing throughout this case is sort of pros versus, versus pretenders. And the pretenders are your Rudy's and worse than pretenders, your, your Parnas and Fruman and these guys, but also even your Sondland, right? A guy who gets his position as an ambassador by donating a million dollars to the Trump inaugural and Rick Perry, right? And, and those guys who were put on this case as the, second uh, sort of alternate channel versus people like Taylor and Kent and Hill and, and Yovanovitch who do this for a living and do this throughout administrations and have done it through Democratic and Republican administrations alike. And I think w- this is what, what I think most people would call with, with some admiration career public service professionals, ca- career diplomats, career military professionals. But what Donald Trump and his and some of his uh, supporters call the deep state. I think this is what Donald Trump is yes. talking about. Yes. One of the defenses is deep state. And they look at people like Taylor and Kent and think these are bureaucrats. They're the ones who think they really run the show, not us elected people. And yes. so they undermine us. But what the other way of looking at that, I think the better way is the job of the career public official professional is to sort of mitigate and guard against the worst impulses of the political individuals look they understand that political appointments run the departments but and, and political appointments get to make the broad policy decisions and decide which direction we're going but one of the functions of those of career bureaucrats if that i don't think that should have a negative connotation is to prevent politicians and political appointees from going too far, from doing things that are unethical or worst case scenario, illegal. And I think that's what we're seeing play out right here.
1: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Um, one last thing before you go. Um, there was yeah. o- only one laugh line in the day, and this was serious business, and everyone seemed yep. to respect the solemnity. Well, most people seemed to respect the solemnity of the occasion. But there was a laugh line, and I feel like there's something there that we should attend to. It's, it was a beautiful line, and I you will not believe this. I don't I don't remember who delivered it. It was one of the Democrats on the committee. Um, yep. and I, I, I know what you You know what I'm going to say. Right? With
0: uh, well, we we can have the person who started this all come testify. Get the president in here. Exactly,
1: that part. exactly. Yeah. And when yeah. you you know, laughter says there's something there, and the right. irony of the constant obsession with um you know who what evil deep state figure is at the heart of this the you know the secretive shift meetings with the whistleblower that haven't taken place. Shift said in no uncertain terms that there right. must be something evil down there. Well, there's evil in plain view. And the chief, the person who, quote, started all this is not the whistleblower, but the president of the United States, who has refused to testify over and over again in any of these investigations. So, I mean, he won't put this thing to rest. He doesn't even take the fifth.
0: Look, always come back to the July 25th transcript, because for all the distractions, for all the clutter that's out there, you have the president's own words. And so if people want to say this is secondhand, thirdhand, okay, we have firsthand. If people want to say Uh, uh, deep state or whistleblower, you have the president in his own words directly talking to the president of Ukraine. And I I still, to this day, I cannot believe that they voluntarily produced that transcript. I mean, it came out the the day before it was being released. It was announced, we're releasing it tomorrow. And I thought, as soon as I saw that, I thought, Okay, this transcript's gonna be a dud. It's gonna yeah. be ambiguous and it's gonna be open to interpretation. And then when I saw it, I went, oh my God, what are they doing? I mean, I've seen real life bribery cases nowhere near that clear of an exchange. I mean, <laughs> short of short of invoking the Latin phrase quid pro quo, that's about as clear as you get. Although let me make the counterpoint too, which is, I don't know, maybe it actually helped them. Like put the worst piece of evidence out there first, and then everything this goes back to the drama point. Everything that comes after it seems peripheral to it or or, or like sort of Anticlimax compared to it. And it's again like, it's like frog boiling or, or gaslighting where you're like, well, we've already seen the worst. And oh, yeah, that old transcript, right? Remember that? But uh, nothing as sensational has emerged since.
1: Well, I think Vindman is going to tell us some things that are maybe missing from the transcript in yeah. his public testimony, and we also know that the, at some point they didn't think it was so it was so much fun to put it on a on a billboard in Times Square that they put it in the deep freeze in their you know special secret double secret server. So right. I well, hope springs eternal, but I think they are rolling out this case Schiff and Goldman and the rest of them very elegantly and it you know it might not be you know ultimate fighting enough for for some viewers but the commitment of shift to telling the story that we are following the facts nobody yeah. is hot-headed here we are following the facts you want to tell us that we're hot-headed we're not we're we're going slowly and the Senate should should pay heed to this. We are consulting, he says, our consciences and our constituencies and we are following the facts. And, oh, if they happen to lead, you know, if Taylor will be perfectly candid that he didn't hear from President Trump X, Y, Z from his the, the horse's mouth and, and will go very, very slowly. And that is actually its own kind of performance This performance of logic and building this brick wall so that when it gets to the Senate, they will have to show the same measured consideration for the facts, ideally, that Schiff modeled for them in the House.
0: Yeah, it's exactly how you would build a case for a jury in a criminal case. Right. I mean, when when you're a prosecutor, your job is to be clear and credible. Your, Your job is not to be the cult of personality or make the jury fall in love with you or anything like that. Like if they like you and th- and think you're relatable, that's a nice bonus. But your job is to build the case, make it clear, make it credible, and 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 let the jury take it from there. Of course, we're not in that exact situation here because your jurors are, uh, are all 100 of them are fully committed to one team or another. So it's a different scenario here. But look, ultimately, I don't think the end game is the outcome of the Senate. Obviously, the outcome of the Senate in the Senate is going to be very important. But I think regardless of which way that goes, it's important that a historical record be made and that the constitutional imperative here be met. Uh, we're going to go through this process. The president's conduct has been serious enough to trigger this process. We're going to make the factual record. We're going to do it in a clear, straightforward way. So at least we will have discharged our constitutional duty and history will know how this all went down
1: beautiful place to end. Thank you, Ellie, so much for being here for, you know, for the fifth time, we will send you your gilded robe with a Trumpcast logo on it. Fantastic. Thank you very much.
0: Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
1: That's it for today's show. What'd you think? I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And once you've checked in on Twitter, join us as a Slate Plus member for a roster of ad-free Slate podcasts, fun perks, and the knowledge that you're seriously supporting everything we do at Slate. It's only $35 for that feeling of virtue and all the digital swag for the entire first year. So go to Slate.com slash TrumpCastPlus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan and engineered by Merritt Jacob. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Now let's just go look at a zinnia or make a corn husk doll. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.